This is DNA Ann, the podcast bringing you the latest science and innovation in DNA and our health. Hello and welcome to today's episode on DNA and newborn babies. In this episode, we will discuss the incredible possibilities as well as the wider implications surrounding the UK's newborn genome screening programme. Stay tuned to hear how this could transform healthcare for future generations. Hello, we're your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I am Angelos. So today we're following on from episode one, where we introduced Genome UK. And this is the UK's policy plan for building a genomic healthcare service. And this will provide better prediction and prevention of health conditions and more personalised treatments. And one of the big projects included in this strategy is the Newborn Genomes Programme. So we'll soon be enrolling 100,000 newborns. Well, their parents actually will be enrolling their parents. True. So we're going to talk you through it, and we're also very excited to be joined later in the episode by Dr. Katrina Stone, who is a clinical geneticist currently working on the Newborn Genome Program. And I, for one, am particularly excited to discuss this program because I, I think it really represents the motivation behind this podcast, that our knowledge of DNA is changing healthcare, and that many of us will experience this change firsthand. So let's start by breaking down the topic for today. Newborn genome screening. The newborn part is pretty straightforward, right? But perhaps we can explain what a genome screen is. Yeah, right. So the idea behind screening is to identify people who are at an increased risk of certain health conditions. And this is often before symptoms develop. So screens are typically carried out for treatable conditions where an early diagnosis can significantly improve someone's prognosis. And that means the likely course and outcomes of their condition. Oh, a good example would be the smear test, which detects people with a high risk of cervical cancer. So in the UK, this test is offered to everyone with a cervix over the age of 25 and has prevented 70% of deaths from cervical cancer, which is pretty amazing, right? So this is, of course, a DNA-themed podcast, so we're going to be talking about health conditions caused by DNA variants. And we should quickly recap what we mean by a variant. So for context, our DNA is a four-letter code, A, C, T, and G, and we humans share 99.9% of the letters. But at particular positions, the letter can be different between people. So you might have an A and I might have a T, and this is what we call a variant. Yes, and the majority of genetic variation is harmless, but there is a tiny proportion of the DNA where a variant can cause harm. You can check out episode one for more details. The key point here is that screening newborn babies is not a new concept. In the UK, for example, newborn babies have been screened for rare conditions for over 60 years. So the test is called the blood spot test, or sometimes called the heel prick test because a spot of blood is taken from the heel of a baby's foot. And in the UK, it's used to test for nine rare health conditions, and actually a tenth one is going to be added to that list soon. And it's routinely offered to every newborn baby, and current uptake of the test is over 99%. Oh, and we should highlight at this point that this is completely harmless to the baby. Yes. Well, unless you're Achilles, I guess. Oh, yeah, sorry, Achilles, no heel prick test for you. (laughs) So maybe we should give an example of one condition, right? Uh, PKU is a very good example because it was the first condition to ever be tested in a national newborn screen, and that was back in 1969. Yes, PKU, which stands for phenylketonuria, but maybe we should stick with PKU. Yeah, phenylketonuria. Is is that right? Yeah. You've been practicing. I've been practicing. Thanks for noticing. (laughs) So... 
PKU. It's a great example in this case because early detection completely changes the outlook for the patient. Yes, for people with PKU, foods which are high in protein are effectively toxic. Specifically, these individuals are missing the machinery which processes the amino acid phenylalanine due to a DNA variant. So we should mention at this point that amino acids is basically the building blocks of proteins. So eating foods with phenylalanine can lead to brain damage and developmental delay in people with PKU. However, the condition can be managed by a low protein diet and these causes can be effectively prevented. It's so amazing that we can do this. So PKU affects around one in every 20,000 people, but that still means about 70 babies are born in the UK every year with PKU. I think it's important to tell our listeners at this point that we know of over 7,000 different rare diseases. So the majority of these are caused by DNA variants, which disrupt specific processes. And by rare, we mean a condition which affects less than one in 2,000 people. Yes, because it reflects the probability that a DNA variant will occur in the same place. And the genome is so large after all. But if you combine all the different conditions we know of, then there are actually around 3.5 million people in the UK who will be affected by a rare disease sometime in their life. That's one in every 17 people. Yeah, and many of these people will experience what we call the diagnostic odyssey. So this means that it takes over four years on average to receive a diagnosis. So there really is an unmet need to improve healthcare for these people. So the idea behind the newborn genomes screening program is that the current blood spot test, which detects nine conditions, will be accompanied by a DNA-based test, which will detect around 200 conditions. Whoa, this is quite a big increase from nine to 200. So why are they so different? The blood spot test is a biochemical test, right? Yeah, so the blood spot test looks for irregularities in the blood, whereas the DNA-based test will detect if a DNA variant is present, which is known to cause or increase the risk of a health condition. Hmm, I see. We should also note that Genomics England estimated that during the study, 99.5% of babies will have a no-condition suspected result. But that still leaves half percent, or roughly 1,000 babies, we will receive a result that a condition is suspected. Yeah, so screening for 9 or 10 or even 200 out of thousands of conditions may seem very low, right? But there's a few reasons for this. Firstly, of course, we don't know the causes for many of these conditions. And secondly, not all variants are what we call fully penetrant. Oh, right. I haven't heard this term since undergrad. So you mean that a DNA variant can cause a health condition, but it won't necessarily do in every person that it's found in. Exactly. Very well remembered. Yeah. So (laughs) there's some specific criteria for the conditions included on the screen. And we'll talk to Katrina about this a bit later on in the episode. So before we move on, we should probably clarify what this new test will involve. It will be a whole genome sequencing test. So this means that the baby's complete DNA sequence will be read. So all three billion letters, technically pairs of letters because we have two copies of our DNA, one from each parent. I wouldn't blame people for thinking that reading the entire DNA would be kind of an overkill. Yes, but there are some advantages, right? The main one being that this would be just one test. It's kind of future-proof in a way. If researchers later find a new variant, which they can link to causing a health condition, you don't need to update the test or introduce something new as the information is already there. So you can just go back and look up the DNA position. Actually, the UK has been behind other countries on newborn screens. While we screen for nine rare conditions, the US depending on the state, screens for between 30 to 60, and countries in Europe screen for over 25. Oh, Italy actually screens for over 45. So, is it better to be born in Italy? 
Well, well, I guess if you're a baby with a condition in that list of 45, then yes, right? Yeah, I'm not sure, but I'm, um, I guess I'm a pizza-loving baby. Yeah, <laughs> pizza-loving baby. <laughs> I'm a pizza-loving adult, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same. So we're going to take a quick break, but in part two, we're going to talk to our guest speaker, Dr. Katrina Stone, who will tell us more about the program. And we will explore the benefits of storing an individual's genome over their lifetime to create a lifetime resource to enhance their healthcare. Stay tuned to hear all about it. So, we should emphasize that this is currently a research project. Evidence gathered during the course of the study will be used by the NHS and the UK National Screening Committee to help to decide whether genome-led newborn screening should be offered as a standard within the NHS but there are lots of potential implications to explore first. Yeah, and I think one of the most unique parts of this project is one of the other aims, which is to create a lifetime resource to explore the potential risks and benefits of storing an individual's genome over their lifetime to inform their future healthcare. Hmm, and this is a bit more of an uncharted territory. Yeah, definitely. So this one is where I really think healthcare could start looking very different in the future. So the genome screen would generate information for the entire genome, it's in the name, right? And there's so much information in there which is useful and relevant for somebody's health. You can have sort of conditions that might develop later on in life which you wouldn't want to report to the parents of a newborn baby, but the information could inform your GP, your healthcare professionals with your care later on and avoid that diagnostic odyssey. So another interesting use here would be pharmacogenomics and we're going to talk all about it in the next episode. That word might seem quite confusing if you haven't heard it before. Basically, it's referring to DNA variants, which determine whether a drug works for you or not. Yeah, so all drugs that we take, medicinal drugs, go through their own pathways of metabolism, and those can be disrupted. Yeah, Hannah, stop spoiling the next episode. (laughs) A quick example would be the painkiller codeine, though. And without giving too much away, I'm looking at you, Hannah, codeine doesn't actually work for everybody. So Katrina, welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to have you on. Could you start by giving us a little bit of background of your work and how you got involved in the Newborn Genomes Programme? So thank you for inviting me. So my name is Dr. Katrina Stone. I'm a junior doctor. I work in the NHS and specialise in clinical genetics. Um, But I've currently taken a little break from the NHS to work full-time at Genomics England. Um, And I've been working on the Newborn newborn Genomes Programme for the last eight months. Interesting. So what drew you to the project? Just that it's something quite new and to have the opportunity to work as part of a team on a kind of big research project that could have an impact on the future health of so many members of the population and do something a little bit different as well because I've always worked in the NHS and haven't really known any different. So it's been really exciting to explore what else is out there. Yeah, so we spoke a bit about Genome UK in episode one, and we were also really excited to discuss this project because I think it's one of the flagship projects of the whole policy. So, Katrina, thanks for joining on the podcast and sharing some insight on the project. Can you tell us a bit more about the three aims? Yeah, so the first aim is a kind of screening aim. So it's to evaluate the utility and feasibility of screening newborns for a larger number of childhood onset rare genetic conditions than they're currently screened for, and to do so using genome sequencing. The second aim is to understand how babies' genomic data could be used for discovery research, so For example, to perhaps develop new treatments, which might then become available on the NHS. 
And then the third aim is to explore the potential risks, benefits and broader implications of storing a baby's genome over a lifetime and the points at which you might think about dipping into it to assist in their healthcare. Yeah, so let's start with the first aim, the screening newborns for different health conditions. Maybe you can give us a little bit more clarification on the difference between this new test and what the new project is going to bring to this space that isn't there currently. So I think it's really important to state first of all that this test is part of a research project and it's not designed to replace the newborn blood spot tests in any way because the tests work in quite different ways and they potentially could complement each other in the future. So in the blood spot test, a little bit of baby's blood is collected on a card when they're five days old usually, and then it's analysed for specific biochemical markers that would be present in the blood. And then if the levels of these markers fall outside of established cutoffs, this means the baby is at a higher risk of having one of the conditions that's being screened for. So the test in a way is looking for a sign that the condition might be present in a baby already then they would be referred to a specialist for further tests to try and confirm whether they're affected or not. So the difference when taking a genome-led approach is that instead of looking for markers in the blood, we look in the DNA for disease-causing genetic variants in genes that we'd expect to cause one of the conditions that we're interested in. And for the majority of the conditions that we'd be including in the screening panel, there'll be a follow-up test which can confirm whether the baby is affected or not. But one of the benefits of taking a genome-led approach is that you can use the same test, so a genome sequence, to screen for many different conditions at once. Yeah, so an interesting point with that is that there is the possibility of picking up variants which increase risk of conditions which are maybe involving different organs or different developmental conditions which don't manifest in the blood. So I suppose that could be another added advantage of the test, right? Yeah, certainly to an extent. A lot of them you can do a blood test for, but yeah, there are others where the investigation might be some kind of imaging, so an MRI scan, for example. So we talked about the new project screening for 200 conditions, although we know of several thousand that have a genetic cause. Can you tell us a bit more about the criteria that need to be met for including a condition? It sounds like a rigorous process. Yeah, so there are pre-existing screening criteria, and one of the most well-known is probably the Wilson and Junger criteria, which have been around since the mid-20th century. We developed four principles to take into account some of the nuances of using a genome-led approach and the fact that this research study is going to be embedded within the NHS. So in summary, those are principle A, that there's good evidence that variants cause the condition and where possible there's a complementary test that's available. And for principle B, the condition should be highly penetrant. So that means if the variants are present, there should be a high likelihood that that individual would actually have the condition and that the condition also significantly impacts quality of life. And then for principle C, that there's some kind of early intervention that improves outcomes, and for our conditions, this would usually be instigated by the age of five. And then principle D is that there's a treatment that's equitably available within the NHS. That is very important. Yeah, so we're working really closely with the NHS to ensure that the treatment for any condition that's included is universally available within the NHS. And for this reason, for example, we won't include any conditions where the only treatment available is through a clinical trial, because that wouldn't necessarily be equitably available and be discontinued. So those sorts of conditions wouldn't be suitable to be included at this point. So the key point here is that the genome screening will include conditions that are not screened by the blood spot test. Do you have an example of such a condition that is newly included? So I can't give any specifics at the moment because the final list is still being developed. But it's likely that the screen will look for a number of metabolic conditions, 
some of which can be managed with a special diet or a specific supplement. There's also likely to be a number of severe immune deficiencies included on the screening panel, and many of those can be treated with a stem cell transplant. So in recent years, several gene therapies have also been approved within the NHS for use in children with particular conditions. And we hope that some of these conditions will end up on the final list too. And that's particularly because there's often good evidence of improved outcomes with earlier intervention. And then as the study goes on, we will be able to make changes, so potentially remove conditions where we're having lots of false positives, for example, or also add to the conditions included on the list based on new evidence that's become available or new treatments. Yeah, and I think it's so important here to emphasise that one of the aims is to give people options and choices. So the availability is there, the equity of the treatment options is there. So on that note, I wanted to ask a little bit about who's involved in running the project and organising it. Yeah, so as a team, we've been really committed to involving a wide range of people across the newborn genomes programme and all the different aspects. And that's so that we can understand ambitions, questions and concerns about the study as well. So we do that through a range of approaches, and that included user research and co-design, and also have been developing the materials for the study collaboratively, and we regularly discuss our work with different communities. So there's also been public dialogue and engagement methods that have been used to explore specific topics or answer specific questions. So for example, to kick off the programme back in 2021, along with the National Screening Committee in the UK, we commissioned a public dialogue to explore the implications of whole genome sequencing for newborns. And about 130 members of the public took part, and that included people with genetic conditions or a family history of a genetic condition new or expectant parents, and also people from minority ethnic backgrounds and young adults as well. And then we're very lucky at Genomics England to have a participant panel, and that's made up of a diverse group of people who have their data held in our National Genomic Research Library. And the panel members come from all different walks of life and bring their experience of rare disease or cancer to our work. And their input is hugely valuable, as indeed is the input we get from others who are generous enough to share their lived experience with us. I'd also like to ask about the other aim, which is to keep the genome to create a lifetime resource for healthcare later in life. Yeah. So at the moment, the team's focus has mainly been on the screening aim, as we work towards starting to recruit babies at our first few NHS sites this winter. But certainly there's a lot to explore in the lifetime genome area. But to give a few examples, which are likely to be explored, pharmacogenetics, you could look into, and that could influence which medications are prescribed in the future to a particular individual. There's potential to screen people for adult onset cancer predisposition syndromes, which could influence whether there is any additional screening that would be appropriate. And then just looking into people's genomes to advise them on their risk of common conditions, so heart disease or high blood pressure in the future, to help them manage their risk. Yeah, and one of the other aims of the project is research, right? And Angelos and I have talked a lot about this because we're approaching this from the perspective of academics. But we've really seen the impact of being able to access these resources, discovering new variants which are linked to health conditions, and of course the follow-on impact that that will have on people's lives. So it is really crucial, the research side of it as well. So the newborn participants will have their genome data uploaded to the National Genome Research Library. Can you tell us a bit about how this will work exactly? Will the data be anonymized? Will there be an option to withdraw consent? Uh, Yeah, so that's right. When parents enroll their baby in the generation study, they give their consent for their baby's genomic data and certain linked healthcare data to be included in the National Genomic Research Library, or NGRL for short. 
So you asked about anonymization. Um, because everyone's genome is unique, it's not technically possible to anonymize a genome. However, all the data is de-identified, meaning that any identifiable information such as name, NHS number are removed. As with all research, participants or their families, in our case, because our participants will be too young for a while to come, are free to withdraw from the study and the NGRL at any time. So some of the concerns that people often raise have to do with discrimination and insurance bias. How would you reassure people uh, who have access to the data and what measures are being taken for data safety? Yeah, so the data within the NGRL is stored securely by Genomics England, so we're responsible for that data. So researchers can apply to access the data and they need to go through an approval process before they're granted access. And even then, they're only able to access the data within Genomics England's secure research environment. And so they can't kind of take data out, so to speak. So we take our responsibility to keep participants' data safe and maintain their trust really seriously. Um, And on top of that, there are strict laws around data protection in the UK. Yeah, and I think it's also important to emphasise that this is not a new concept, having these large cohorts with patient data, especially in the UK. We've got excellent infrastructure through Genomics England and other organisations where we have existing large cohorts. And I guess the difference here is that they're very young participants, so this is going to be a newborn cohort, but we have very good data protection laws. Also, there's other projects across the world which are looking at newborn genome screening. But the thing that is unique about the Newborn Genomes Programme and the Generation Study is that we're the only study to be recruiting within a national health service, which poses lots of challenges, but also brings great advantages to our study. And also that uh, aspect of being able to integrate our genomic data with future health records as well. And are there some efforts to ensure that there's going to be diversity in the participants? Obviously, the UK is a very diverse place. Yeah. So whilst we've been kind of shortlisting NHS trusts, which the study will be recruiting at, one of the things that we've looked at is making sure that the UK's diverse population is represented. And then we're also planning to have some of our recruitment materials translated into languages which are the most spoken in the areas where our trusts are situated. And coming back to the theme of the podcast, as a last question, what do you think would be a very good impact of this project on healthcare? And what do you see coming after this project? Mm, Good question. So hopefully the major short-term positive impact will be that we'll be identifying babies with treatable genetic conditions early on in life, which should maximise their chances of improved outcomes. And then over the course of the study, we'll be able to provide important evidence as to whether genome sequencing has a role in newborn screening and within the NHS at the moment. And then with the longer-term aims, we'll be exploring the implications of storing a lifetime genome as part of perhaps a potential genomic health record that could be dipped into at different points in an individual's life with a view to optimising their future healthcare. Brilliant. Well, Katrina, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really fantastic to have you on the podcast and hear your perspective. So we wish you all the best of luck with your junior doctor endeavours and we're looking forward to seeing where this project goes. Thank you for having me. So that's a wrap on the second episode of DNA And. Don't forget to tweet us your comments or your questions. We're looking forward to it. And as always, don't forget we will be holding a book competition on Twitter, so make sure to check that out. 
yeah, we'll be really interested to hear your thoughts on this one. So don't forget the Twitter handle is at DNA and pod with and spelled A-N-D in a capital P for pod. Thank you again to the Genetic Society who support this podcast. And we're very much looking forward to the next episode and hearing from you all. So thank you for listening. We've been your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Angelos, the pizza-loving baby. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.